Leonard Cohen, you may be aware, is a Canadian singer, folk rock guy, who uh, writes poems and literature as well. And one time he did a reading of the poem for Wilf and His House. And it begins like this. When young, the Christians told me how we pinned Jesus like a lovely butterfly against the wood, and I wept beside paintings of Calvary at velvet wound and delicate twisted feet. Indeed, for some 2,000 years, Christians have been telling the old, old story of how we not just pinned but nailed Jesus to an old Roman cross and how he, he loved even from there as his life expired from him. And we're going to be looking at Luke's account of that today. And Luke is going to paint for us a picture of what was going on in those final moments of Jesus' life. And really, this is an invitation to come and, and to weep and to mourn at what happened to this most beautiful of persons. And so we're going to call our study today The Death and Burial of Jesus as we dial in on that final moment and see what happens with it. And so if you would, just pray with me as we open the scriptures and, and ask the Lord to teach us uh, what for many of us is a very familiar story and maybe for some of us is a brand new story and to help us to see the implications for our own life as well. So let's pray together. Lord, as we look at Luke's account of how they nailed Jesus to that old Roman cross, help us to understand the significance of what is going on there, especially as Luke paints this word picture for us to, to envision and to, to get our minds around what happened and how Jesus, even on the cross, conducted himself. Help us understand at a deeper level today, maybe than we've ever understood, what the significance is of the cross of Jesus for each and every one of us this day. So whether we come in here, Father, full of faith or, or full of doubt, whether we find ourselves struggling to believe, or we come in here with a steady and firm conviction, whether we're weighed down with cynicism and jadedness, or whether we come in here just fully optimistic, would you meet us this day and, and bear the gospel of Jesus down upon our hearts? We pray in his name. Amen. So in this text that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at specifically what someone has called the three crucifixion miracles, the three miracles that took place as Jesus' life was expiring. And then we're going to see one person who was a secret disciple of Jesus, who at the most interesting, interesting of times decided to go public with his faith and identify it with Jesus. So let's jump in as we kind of marinate in the scriptures this morning in this account and look at what Luke has for us to see. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour is high noon, and Jesus has already been on the cross for about three hours at this point. And we're told that there's this great darkness that settles upon the land. And this is the first crucifixion miracle that we see. It's interesting that around the year 200, um, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, uh, made reference in a letter he wrote to some Romans, saying, this wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. This was something that was widely known. In fact, a few other church fathers made reference to one historian and Greek writer by the name of Phlegon, who recounted that at the time, or around the time of the crucifixion, the sky grew incredibly dark, so dark that they could see the stars in the sky. 
And he said it was an eclipse. But if that's what happened here at the moment of Jesus, we know it could not have been an eclipse because an eclipse, as you know, lasts for just a few moments. Plus, this is happening at Passover, which is the full moon of the month. And so it couldn't have been that. To see this darkness descend upon the scene of the crucifixion is something that God did. Why did he do that? Why at this moment in history, at the brightest time of the day, did God cause a darkness to descend upon this scene? We're going to follow uh, Philip Ryken and his commentary and what he suggests are a few uh, reasons why, and I'm going to add a few of my own. First of all, it's an appropriate symbol of evil and of darkness. Luke has already told us about the time when Jesus was arrested, and they came with him with swords and clubs, and he said to them, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so it's entirely and fittingly appropriate that at that moment when darkness reigns, the evil of men's hearts reign, the darkness in the universe and in this moment should resemble exactly what happened there. But darkness is also a symbol of rejection. In the Gospel of John, we're told, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, referring to Jesus. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so at this moment, when the world rejects the light of the world, it's entirely appropriate for darkness to descend upon the scene. But darkness is also a symbol of judgment. The scriptures tell us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is, the sacrifice of the Messiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is one of those fancy theological, biblical words that just simply means the, the bentness and crookedness of our nature. The reason why we do things that we shouldn't do. The Lord has laid on him all of that. And so again, it's appropriate as a symbol. It's also a symbol of sorrow. It's an interesting place, hundreds of years before Jesus even walked this planet, when Amos said this, Amos the prophet, And on that day, declares God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. This is when this prophecy was fulfilled. The sun went down, darkened the earth in broad daylight. And here's maybe one final reason. Darkness as decreation. You remember in the beginning, Genesis tells us, God said, let there be light. And now when everything is wrong and not the way it's supposed to be, it's appropriate as a symbol for everything that's going wrong. And God, in essence, says, let there be darkness. This is the moment when darkness reigns. And so a supernatural miracle took place at high noon that even historians recognized at the time occurred. Here's the second crucifixion miracle that took place. Luke just gives us seven words in Greek, but this is what he said. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. He doesn't go into much detail here, but he's assuming that his readers understand the significance of this. The temple, of course, is the place where the Israelites would go and perform their sacrifices. And inside the temple were two chambers. One was called the holy place, and inside the next chamber was called the holy of holies. And inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And that, as Israel believed, was the place where God manifested his presence. No one was allowed in there except for once a year when the high priest would go in and make a sacrifice and offer prayers, literally in the presence of God. And so it was a beautiful structure. And this incredibly high, some some estimate that it was 60 to 90 feet high, this, this curtain. And it was thick. And we're told that at the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus, it tore in two. And what's the significance of that? If Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice to end all sacrifices, then there's no longer any sacrifices needed. And if Jesus, through his sacrifice, opens for us the presence of God, then it's no longer necessary for the temple to separate that presence off from people. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we're told this. We have confidence to enter into the holy places, and this is now speaking of heaven, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So as Jesus hangs there, torn by nails, beaten to an inch of his life, that's the new curtain that opens up for us the presence of God. In fact, when Matthew writes about this, the gospel writer, he says this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Interesting detail that Matthew gives us. Mark does as well. This incredibly high uh, curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom. I and mean, if a human wanted to do this, they would have to erect a scaffolding to go up there and just get a sword and begin hacking its way down. But we're told it just happened. And can you imagine being a priest in the temple at this moment when you know what's on the other side of that curtain and all of a sudden it tears in two? It must have been a terrifying experience for them to see that take place. Luke tells us in his next um, volume, the book of Acts, that the word of God continued to spread. This is now the word about Jesus. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. A number of the priests that were working in Jerusalem, when they understood the significance of the life and death of Jesus, became obedient. And I wonder if part of that is because they told one another, and those who weren't serving that day, what miracle they saw of that curtain tearing in two. Well, Jesus is hanging there, crucified. And in just a few short words, the Gospel writer Luke tells us of the expiration of his life. He's brought us through the scourging of Jesus by the religious leaders and by the Romans. We've seen him attempt to carry his cross, but so weak they got another person to carry it for him. We've seen him erected there on the cross and the crowds mocking him, scoffing at him. And now Luke tells us, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus has now hung on the cross for about six hours. Three hours shrouded in total darkness. And with every last bit of strength that he has, he cries out to the heavens, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a bold statement of trust that Jesus gives here. He has been the sin bearer. He has been bearing the curse of sins in his body, where God condemned our sins in his flesh. 
And now he cries out in a statement of trust to the very father who before he said, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. One commentator by the name of Philip Ryken is helpful in understanding what's going on here. He said, these are the dying words of a dying man, a man forsaken by God, yet there was light at the end of the cross. When Jesus put his spirit into his father's hands, he was expressing full confidence that death was not the end for him. He believed that there was life beyond the grave, that his spirit would survive. Therefore, Jesus rested complete trust in his father for death and for everything that would come after. From the end of the cross, he would see the light of the empty tomb. He knew the father had always promised to him to raise his body from the grave, and that this would happen on the third day. In the meantime, he, trust, he entrusted his soul to the Father. Here's the third miracle that Luke shows us. He says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was the commander in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. When Luke says here, I highlighted it for us, the centurion, there may have been multiple ones there, but I believe that Luke is tipping his hat, telling us the man in charge, the, the head honcho for the crucifixion of Jesus, now is praising God. Luke is being a bit cryptic here, but... But don't let that phrase get by you. This man who had just oversaw the beating of Jesus, who, who oversaw the execution of Jesus, as he hears Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and sees the body of Jesus go limp, something shifted in his heart. And he begins to praise God. And he says out loud what Pilate has already said. He says out loud what Herod has already said. He says out loud what many people have already said. Certainly, this man was innocent. And so see that feared Roman soldier, that centurion in charge of a hundred other soldiers overseeing the execution of Jesus, with this shift in his heart, some miracle took place in him. We're told also by the Gospel writer Mark that when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Well, which was it? Did he say this man was the Son of God, or did he say certainly this man was innocent? Well, he probably said that and probably a few other things. But each gospel writer is pulling out a specific phrase for his purpose. And Luke wants, us to wants, to see us, uh, wants to see it highlighted one more time, that Jesus was innocent of everything they said against him. And then we're told in verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breath. I think Luke wants to see these, these crowds that had assembled, and it's interesting, he uses this word spectacle. It's also the, the same root word from which we get the word spectator. It's like they're coming here to, to see blood spilt. So I was thinking about this. I thought about the days in the South where um, lynchings on trees were attended by the crowd. And they would bring picnics and 
Sometimes pictures would be taken and made in the postcards of what happened, and it was a spectacle. They were there for blood sport. And I wonder if Luke means for us to see something like this. They had come out to see a crucifixion take place, as brutal as it was. But when they saw what had taken place, something shifted in them. They went home beating their breasts. Maybe it was just simply seeing the beauty of Jesus, refusing to be provoked by the taunts of the crowds and the religious leaders and the soldiers. Maybe it's hearing Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe it's hearing Jesus say, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And they realize there's no bitterness or guile in this guy. And so whatever reason they came, they now left just beating their chest at the horror of what they witnessed. And then we're told in verse 49, all his acquaintances, that is Jesus' acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The ones that are absent are the disciples. Except for John. We know from another gospel writer that John was there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she watched the life of her son expire. But the other disciples are nowhere to be found. But there were a lot of acquaintances of Jesus, a lot of fans of Jesus. And, and the women who had followed him from Galilee on his long march down to Jerusalem, these are the women that Luke told us earlier were supporting Jesus in his ministry. And so now they're standing there looking at the limp body of Jesus, crucified and dead. I think when we read through this, it's hard for us just to miss the shock that they must have felt. Not only did they love Jesus and had high expectations for him, they thought, as one of the disciples would later say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They thought that he was the Messiah. They were all in with him. And now to see him hanging, dead, I don't think we can understand the depth of disappointment and how their world was turned upside down in this moment. N.T. Wright is helpful when he says, if Jesus had simply been a great prophet, his violent death would not have presented his followers with a theological problem. Many prophets died cruel deaths and were venerated as martyrs. But Jesus' followers believed he was not just a prophet, but the Messiah. And nobody expected the Messiah to die at the hands of the pagans. He was supposed to defeat them, not succumb to their violence. The crucifixion might have made Jesus a great martyr or sealed his career as a great prophet, but by itself it meant that he could not have been God's anointed, the Messiah. And so there are the acquaintances of Jesus. And the women who had supported him, looking at him hanging limp, dead, upon that ruined cross. And everything they thought was true has now been shattered around them. Luke wants to introduce us to one more person who was at this scene. In verse 50, he says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. This is not Joseph, the father of Jesus. There's another man. He was from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. When you ever see that word council in the Gospels, it's the Supreme Court of Israel. Remember those who had decided to hand Jesus over to Pilate, to persuade Pilate to put him to death for them. So he was a member of that Supreme Court of Israel. 
And he was a good and righteous man, Luke tells us, who had not consented to their decision and action. Meaning, maybe he was not there. Maybe, maybe they knew that he had some sympathies for Jesus, and they, they just conveniently forgot to tell him that they were having an assembly of the Supreme Court. Maybe it was he was there, and he was giving voice, but they were all chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So his voice was drowned out. Either way, he had not consented to their decision to put Jesus to death. And Luke tells us he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for that day when God would send the Messiah. But now he goes, we're told in verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. One of the things that we need to understand is that you couldn't just go to Pilate and ask for a body. You can't just go to Pilate in general. He doesn't want to see you. (laughs) He doesn't want to see me. Only very, very important people can go and have access to this Roman governor. And so being a member of the Supreme Court of Israel... A wealthy man, using his influence, goes and he talks to Pilate. And he says, let me have the body of Jesus. This is interesting because the Romans weren't in a hurry to take crucified bodies off crosses. They wanted the bodies to stay up there and begin decomposing. This is part of their statement that if you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. They often left bodies up there where the birds and vultures would come and pick at it. But here, this man named Joseph risked everything to identify with the crucified and dead Messiah, Jesus, by asking for his body. We're told in verse 53 that he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Here's a picture from 2018 of a recently discovered uh, tomb that had been cut out of rock. And this was discovered in the West Bank of the city of Hebron. So it's something similar to this. And they're kind of all over the place, but the people who could afford to have a tomb cut out of rocks were the wealthy people. And so we're told that he, he laid the body of Jesus in this tomb where no other body had been laid. And that's just Luke giving us just a, a I guess, a hook to remember. So that when they go back later on, I don't want to get ahead of our story, and look and see Jesus' body is removed, there were no other bodies. It's not like there were five bodies that were lying in there and they just got confused and thought this one was Jesus, but the other one wasn't. No one had been laid in this tomb yet. This is Joseph's own tomb. And then we're told, as he wraps up chapter 23 here, it was the day of preparation. That is the Friday. It's, It's the day of preparation for Um, the Sabbath, which begins on Saturday. This day of preparation, the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. At this moment, as chapter 23 comes to a close, It looks like the torturous Romans won. It looked like the the evil scheming of the religious leaders have won. It looks like the powers of darkness have carried the day and are victorious. Jesus is now crucified, dead, 
and buried. And that's how chapter 23 ends. Fortunately for us, there's another chapter. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves yet. Why does Luke record this burial execution, brutal execution, uh, in his historical biography of Jesus? Well, you can't understand Christianity without understanding who Jesus is. And you can't understand who Jesus is and what his mission was all about unless you understand the cross. And so, of course, Luke is not going to exclude this. This is a major part of the story of Jesus. But he, he lays it before us, declaring from a number of mouths that Jesus was innocent. And this man, who had loved so well, who had healed, who had encouraged so many hearts, now lay still in a dark tomb. I think Luke wants to help us see that Jesus is the chosen king sent by God with a mission to become the savior of the world. And at the center of that mission is his death for the atonement of our sins. So just a couple points of application. The first one is this. Let's locate the story of Jesus in the bigger story of God's renewal of all things. If we just had an account of some random person who died at the hands of the Romans... That's nothing really new. I mean, as tragic as that is, Romans crucified thousands and thousands of people. Uh, They had crafted this evil torture device and made it into an art. But there's something unique about Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, who had been a part of those groups of people who wanted to see Jesus put to death, met Jesus post-resurrection, was converted, And he would later write to some Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth. He says these words, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Here Luke is locating the story of Jesus within the greater story that the Scriptures themselves are telling. So let me pull up this graphic that I've shown to you over and over again through the years. There's a four-part story of the gospel. It begins at the beginning of the scriptures with creation and God setting up this world and placing the first humans in a place called the Garden of Eden and charged them with spreading that kingdom, that, that sanctuary, over the face of the earth. But then the rebellion happened when our, when our first humans turned their backs upon God, and we've all ratified the decision when we turn our back upon God. And that necessitated, if God were to redeem and rescue us from our own folly and our own sin, that necessitated a Savior. But this Savior had to come and to lay down his life. As Todd said earlier in the service, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that was for the end of reclaiming this creation as God's kingdom. And as Jesus talked about, one day there will be the renewal of all things. When God's kingdom comes, God takes everything that's broken and heals it, takes everything that's upside down and turns it right side up. And everything will be just the way it's supposed to. The way the Apostle John put it, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more mourning, and no more death. Because now Jesus reigns. The Apostle John, in writing a letter called 1 John, what we call 1 John, said this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when we see Jesus nailed to the cross, it is a unique execution. Rome nailed lots of people to the cross, but it was in this particular person, this innocent human being, that God allowed to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, when we believe in Jesus, we come to understand that Jesus took everything that we've done wrong upon the cross and it was condemned in his body so it wouldn't be condemned in ours. And so when we grab this, it, it becomes life-changing. The way Paul said it, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. You think back over your life and the failures that you've had and the sins and iniquities and transgressions you committed... Jesus became that for us on the cross. Or as Peter put it, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The just for the unjust, to bring you to God. The holy one for the unholy ones, to bring us to God. The sinless one for the sinful ones, to bring us to God. Or as Luke, Luke puts it, the innocent one for the guilty ones to bring us to God. So let's locate the story of Jesus in the greater story that God is telling about the renewal of all things. But here's the second point of application. Let's personalize the death of Jesus for me. When I was 16 years old, actually, I'm sorry, let me back up my story a little bit more. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, uh, my parents and my family were going to a church in Round Rock, Texas, and, and there um, I went to Sunday schools, and I, and I heard the story about Jesus. And one day someone asked me if I believed that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I said, well, sure, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what we call him, right? And they're like, well, let's get baptized. Say this prayer and get baptized. And so I didn't have any objection. My friends were doing it. They were getting some attention. So I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. But let me tell you, my friends, I did not have a concept of Jesus dying for me personally as, as, as one needing redemption. And it wasn't until I was 16 years old when I came across another group of Christians. I had stopped going to church and I came across this other group of Christians. And they, they helped me understand the personal nature of this. That when Jesus died on the cross, he was not just being the savior of the world, as the scriptures call him, he was making a sacrifice of atonement for people like me. And I realized it was my sins that nailed him to that cross. When Jesus became sin for us, it was my sin that he became for me. And at that moment, it became personal for me. That's when my life, that's when my heart changed. That's when I went from being just an admirer of Jesus to becoming a devoted disciple of Jesus. The way Paul put it, like this. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, let me just ask you this question. Does that sentence resonate with you? Is there a way that this becomes personal for you? When you think about Jesus being pinned like a lovely butterfly to the wood, is there a sense in which you understand that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me? My friends, that's what we're supposed to get out of this. We're supposed to see that. And we're, we're meant to trust that. And we're meant 
to embrace it and have our lives defined by it. I should read you the story of Bobby Jindal, who was the former governor of Louisiana. One time he was watching a video, a film about the crucifixion of Jesus, is the life of Jesus, but this particular part of the, the crucifixion of Jesus grabbed hold of him, and this is what he said. I don't know why I was struck so hard at that moment. There's nothing fascinating about this particular video, but watching this depiction of an actor playing Jesus on the cross, it just hit me harder than I've ever been hit before. If that was really the Son of God, and he really died for me, then I felt compelled to get on my knees and worship him. My friends, that's how you know that you've moved from just seeing a man being crucified to understanding that he did that for you. You know when that happens when you feel compelled to get on your knees and to worship Jesus. I love the way that one Scottish poem, or poet wrote. He said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Why is that? Because Jesus lived the most beautiful, perfect, innocent, sinless life of anyone who's walked this earth. And when he died, he died as a common criminal. And there, in that moment, God placed the sins of people like you and me who trust in him upon his back. And so we don't have to depend on how well we perform. We don't have to, to be separated from eternity. But instead, we can trust in what Jesus did for us. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. My friends, can you say that? Does that resonate with you? Some of our great poets have put amazing words. Isaac Watts, Alas, and did my Savior die? Oh, no, sorry, I <laughs> myself. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Or how about that song that we love to sing, It Is Well With My Soul? My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or how about this song that we're going to sing at the end of our service? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my riches gain. I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So my friends, if, if the Gospel of Luke ended with chapter 23, it would be a sad story. Most likely we never would have heard of who Jesus is. But I can't resist just giving you the next sentence. <laughs> chapter 24 opens this way. But on the first day of the week, Something happens so that we not only have heard of Jesus, but he's loved and adored by millions upon millions and upon millions. We're going to look at that next week. But I want to close by reading this 
Uh, it was actually originally spoken by a fellow named Tony Campolo. It's, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And I know we're on Sunday, but we're looking at what happened to Jesus on what Christians now call Good Friday. And uh, he did it much better than me, but I'm going to just simply read it um, for you. He said this, as he recounts the final events and that final, the final moments of Jesus' life. He says, It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's a-coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood is dripping. His body is stumbling. His spirit is burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning, and evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise them up next to to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. Soldiers stand guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it is Friday. It is only Friday. Sundays are coming. Mercy Hill Church, upon a life you did not live, upon a death you did not die, may you stake your whole eternity. Mm-hmm.